Welcome. This is an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. The topic is Wholehearted and Vulnerable Families, Creating a Shame-Resilient Environment. Presented by Melody Jackman, Master's Candidate at George Fox University, during our Restoring Intimacy Conference in September 2014. Other recordings from that event are available on our website, www.healthyintimacy.net. Aloha! Thank you so much for doing that for me. My family had the privilege of living on the Hawaiian island of Maui for three years. And while I was there, I really developed a love for the word aloha, because it means so much more than just hello and goodbye. Um, it's aloha is face and ha is breath. So it's literally sharing the breath of life with each other. So when I think of all of the people who have lived and all of the people who have yet to live, I love that we get to share this moment with each other today. Um, when I say aloha to you, it's a very deep respect for your human life. And when you say it back to me, it's a deep respect for me. One of my favorite definitions of aloha is, um, when there is pain, it is my pain. And when there is joy, it also is my joy. So as we move into the topic of shame today, um, we're gonna be moving into what pain is my pain, and your pain is all shared with each other. I always do a really quirky thing with my name at the beginning, and I'm sorry about this, um, but I have a name that can be very commonly confused. So my first name is Melody, and I do always sing it that way when I introduce it to other people. Otherwise, I get confused with Melanie all the time. So my last name is also very heavily confused. My last name is Jack Man. It's not Jackson. So generally what I'll do is I'll draw a picture of a man on the board, and then I'll draw a picture of his son on the board as well. And then I will X out the sun because it is not Jack's son, but I am Melody Jack Man. Um, but just recently someone approached me and they said, I can remember the man part, but I cannot remember anything else. So my little will started turning in my head and I'm trying to think, okay, how can I make this better so that you'll actually remember this? I know I'm a little bit obsessive. Um, and this is really just kind of quirky, so bear with me. I changed it into Jack Man. <laughs> All right, so sitting in that chair, you're probably wondering who is this person and why is she speaking today? First off, I'm a wife. I'm a mother of five children. I'm a grad student at George Fox in marriage and family therapy. I'm about halfway through a three-year program. Um, my professor says that he's messed with us enough that we'll never ever be able to look at relationships the same way again, but basically we're good for nothing at this point. Um, I am also one of the core co-founders of the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. Um, I'm also a volunteer on a suicide hotline as a call worker. Ironically, my favorite topics to talk about are healthy sex, suicide, and shame. And all of those are very incredibly um, awkward topics. I am also the wife of a recovering sex addict. Um, for the first 10 years of our 20-year marriage, my husband struggled with sexual addiction. We can now say that we've been out of that as much as we were in it, which is a big deal for us. Um, but that journey for me has been very much so about finding my voice, um, really accepting grace 
but also has a great deal to do with shame and coming out of shame and really um, finding my own humanity and accepting my own humanity. So as we're talking today, this presentation is coming from, yes, some of my George Fox learning, but a lot of it also is coming from personal experience. You might also be wondering why in the world we decided to have shame at Healthy Intimacy Conference. And the reason is, is that shame is a roadblock to healthy intimacy in all of its forms, whether it's spiritual, whether it's emotional, and whether it's physical. Shame is a roadblock. It stops it. With shame, there's no vulnerability. And with no vulnerability, there's no real intimacy. Shame totally and completely suffocates intimacy. I'm also passionate about shame because I know the role that it plays in addiction and also suicide. With that, let's dive into shame, and we're going to look at some of the definitions um, that I found as I was preparing for this. The first one is from Jeff Van Vonderen. He said, at the crux of the shame issue is a sense of personal defectiveness. A pervasive sense of shame is the ongoing premise that one is fundamentally bad, inadequate, defective, unworthy, or not fully valid as a human being. Shame is a deep feeling within ourselves that makes us want to hide. And this one was really interesting to me because if you look at the root words that go into making up the word shame, they all are about covering, hiding, and veiling. Um, so this is what shame makes us want to do. It makes us come, come back down inside. And later on when we look at how shame fills, think about what you do when you feel shame. This is perhaps my favorite um, definition of shame, and this is from Brene Brown. She said that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And this is so huge. We've talked a lot today about the connection that we have and our absolute need to be connected to other human beings. This is about survival for us. When we feel shame, it's cutting off that human connection and that need that we have for love and belonging and giving us really that sense of unworthiness. Um, in a lot of the shame literature that you look at out there, there will be this distinction between what shame is and what guilt is. Um, so with guilt, it's very much so on the, the behavior being away from the person. Um, and with shame, it's very much so an inner judge on our inner worth of who we are as a person, the very core of our being, being defective. So with guilt, we have, I have done something bad. With shame, I am bad as a whole. With guilt, you can say, I made a mistake today. With shame, I am a mistake. With guilt, I failed today. With shame, I am a failure. With guilt, I perform badly, and with shame, I am bad. Also, in the shame literature, it was really common to see traits listed on different sides of two things comparing to shame, and sometimes I saw guilt. Sometimes I saw this comparison between healthy shame and toxic shame. Um, in church literature, it was more geared around godly sorrow and shame. Um, so... 
With guilt, we're really open to making changes in our lives. We realize that we've done a behavior that maybe is not that great, um, but we're really open to that idea of making changes. With shame, we become totally in defensive with what's happening. With guilt, we're really open to learning from the mistakes that we've made. With shame, there is an absolute need to be perfect and we have made no mistakes. With guilt, our view of ourself is basically bad. I mean, good. <laughs> With shame, our view of ourself is basically bad. Guilt, it really fosters creativity and growth. Shame undermines our creativity. With guilt, we're ready and willing to take responsibility and apologize for our mistakes. In shame, we're really unwilling to admit to mistakes. Guilt helps us progress towards a better person. Shame damns us so that we don't progress. With guilt, we know we're enough. With shame, there is this pervading sense that we are never enough. Do any of you relate to any of this? I'm guessing that you do. Um, shame likes to tell us that we are completely alone in our unlovability, but we are the only ones. This is something that I hear on the suicide hotline a lot, people feeling like they're the only ones who have felt this low or this bad, and it's just not true. Um, it's a very common thing that pretty much all of us um, feel it from time to time, and it really just appears to be a part of our human existence to have this feeling of shame from time to time. We have different shame triggers from each other. What's gonna trigger shame in me is gonna be very different from what might trigger shame in some of you. But we all know this feeling. So what do we do to get rid of the shame? The answer is, in a way we don't, because it is a part of our human existence. Um, Brene Brown talks about how as long as we have this need for human connection to each other, there's also gonna be this chance to feel shame. All right, so when we talk about shame and the brain, um, there's different parts of our brains that do different things, and I'm feeling slightly self-conscious because we have the brain expert here right now. Um, and I only know about this much of this whole thing. So my understanding is, is that our prefrontal cortex is the place where we plan and we execute and we make decisions and it makes it so that we're able to be empathic with each other. Um, but then we have this limbic system also that's tucked underneath in our brain. Um, that's kind of our survival motivation place where we go into survival mode and we can fear, fear and anger and we can start to feel all these shaming things. So when we start to feel shame, we kind of lose that prefrontal cortex. And I like how Dan Siegel does this thing called flipping your lid, and he's not specifically talking about shame, but it helps me to understand how the shame thing kinds of works. So he talks about if this was our prefrontal cortex with all of our functioning and executive thinking and our ability to be empathic, when we're feeling shame, we flip our lids and we're stuck down in this limbic system right here where we're just functioning out of our fears and functioning out of our shame, and we get stuck in this. Um, and we go into our fight, flight, and freeze mode. Linda Hartling says that in shame, we have three things that we will generally do. One of those things is we'll move away from people. So when we move away, we'll withdraw, we'll become silent, and we'll try to become invisible to others. 
The other thing that we can do is we can move towards people, but not in a good way, where we start losing ourselves and we start people-pleasing and we sacrifice everything that we are just to keep peace. The other thing that we can do in shame is we can become, move against. And this is where we become very big and angry and rageful. Shame triggers all these reactions in us. So with shame, we have a tendency to either get really big or hunker down and become very small. Um, so if you think about shame and that it's really threatening our human connection and our ability to connect with other people, it's triggering our alarm response in us that something is impacting our survival and the way that we live. Shame really threatens us with isolation. So when we are feeling shame, we need to know what we're feeling and what to do next. Because Brene Brown says that when we are in shame, we are not fit for human consumption. We're the most likely to do or say something to someone else that's going to hurt or harm them. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's learn about this. <laughs> All right, so what does shame feel like? Can you think of some words that might go with what shame feels like? Hiding. Hiding. Uh-huh. Sorry? Dark. Dark. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Depression. Depression. Mm-hmm. Afraid? Yes. All right, so I'm very similar to you, where the first thing that I notice when I start to feel shame is I will feel like this warm rush start to go down me, and then it's almost like someone grabbed me or stabbed me right here, and everything inside me goes together like this, and my heart starts racing, and my face will flush, um, and my I just will pull into myself. Sometimes I'll kind of hide. I'll look at the floor. Very much so that hiding, veiling experience for me. Some people report feeling tingling in their armpits as they feel shame. So I want to do a little exercise with you. I learned this from Julie Gottman, um, and it's called the truth and untruth exercise, but it's a way to kind of look at how you're feeling in your body, and we'll explore that a little bit. So. What I want you to do is just relax in your chair, and this might seem a little awkward at first, but go ahead and just kind of relax. And go ahead and stick your hand on your tummy, and you can close your eyes if you want to, if it helps you to relax. But really just focus on breathing, and you can push your, with your breath your hand out. So just really focus on pushing in and out with your stomach while you follow your breath. Okay, and while you're doing that, I want you to repeat something in your head that is not true for you. For me, it would be, I love liver or I hate chocolate. Whatever that is that's not true for you, just repeat it over and over in your mind. I want you to pay attention to how your body feels. Okay, then we're just going to move back into the breath again. 
Just focus on breathing in and breathing out. And this time, I want you to focus on, on something that is true for you. Like, I love my family, or something like that. And just say it over and over in your mind, but as you're saying that, notice what's happening to you as you're saying that truth to yourself. Okay, you can go ahead and stop. Did anyone feel a difference in how they felt? Yeah? Yeah? I was really shocked the first time I did this because I could tell a drastic difference between when I was telling myself something that was the truth and an untruth. And I think that with shame, because it's an untruth, there's a lot of the same similar feelings in there. Um, so that's just an exercise that really shows you what you're saying and what you're thinking impacts how you're feeling throughout your body, um, but also that we can pay attention to those signals as we go. So what next? After we know what shame feels like, what do we need to do? Um, the first thing that I would do is take a break, because remember, we're not fit for human consumption when we're in shame. So the first thing is to really take that break um, whatever that is for you. It can be walking, getting into nature, doing artwork, playing the piano for me is something, working on a puzzle, taking a shower. And for some people, it really is that they just need to cry. Do whatever calms you. Um, one really helpful thing, um, just out of time constraints, we're not going to do this, but one of the helpful things that you can do is a guided imagery exercise where you kind of do the same thing where you breathe and you scan throughout your body and tense your muscles and let go. And then you can imagine a, a place that's very calming for you. Um, my favorite one is to really ground myself into the floor, almost like I'm pulling down like I'm a tree. And then I like to imagine that a waterfall is just running off the back of me and that the shame is going with it. Um, so that's something that can be really useful. One of the most important things that you can do is name the shame. Say it out loud. Dr. Dan Siegel says, name it to tame it. Just the action of being able to say what you're feeling can calm down the physiological arousal. You can do this by just softly acknowledging the shame and saying to yourself, I feel shame. I feel shame. And really acknowledge that you're feeling it. Um, some people like to talk about shame with their higher power and like to surrender that way. For others, one of the most important things that they can do is share the shame with someone else who is a safe place and build that human connection. Um, so my own personal experience is, is that it has to be a safe person who understands shame because I've had those experiences where I've shared my shame with someone and then I've been shamed even more for feeling the shame. So you do want it to be someone that you can share with that's a safe place. So just some tips for all of you on how to be that safe place for others. Um, when I'm on the suicide hotline and I'm getting a call from someone who's feeling shame, the worst thing I could do is start safety planning right away or start dishing out advice of what they should do or start judging them on why they should not be feeling the things that they're feeling. Um, what we've been taught to do is sit in the muck with that person. And when you sit in the muck with someone, that means that you listen to them, that you're gonna reflect back, that you're gonna reflect into your own experiences of shame, and even if you can't understand that person's shame, 
you can reflect back on what it feels like to you and reflect back that sense of me too. Sometimes I feel shame too. I ask a billion questions to those people to find out what their experience is like because I wanna understand them. And it's always amazing to me after we do that, there's this little shift where we've moved out of our limbic system, I guess, into our place where we can start functioning again and people will be better able to um, safety plan, but not until they've been understood and not until they've been listened to. Um, empathy is a very powerful antidote for shame. Judgment absolutely exacerbates it. But it's not just others who will shame us for feeling our shame. Um, I know from personal experience, I'm very, very good at this, shaming myself for feeling my shame. But I can tell you from personal experience that it is not helpful to shame yourself for feeling shame. Um, I grew up in a family where vulnerable feelings were bad and not something to be had at all. Feeling fear or worry or anger or sadness were all signs that I was bad, and not only bad, but unspiritual. So when it came down to um, my husband's addiction, I was very much so like real Croshaw, where I hid everything, and I just shoved it all down to the bottom of my toes, um, because I felt like I was not supposed to be having the feelings that I was having with all of that. Um, but that didn't help me at all to do that. Um, and all that caused for me was major depression. So one of my big things in my journey has been <clears throat> learning to befriend myself and befriend these really shaming feelings. Um, and that's just been so huge in my journey. It's also really important in befriending that we actually befriend them. When we have a friend, we take them in, we learn about them, we wanna know what's going on. So with shame, that's the same thing. When we feel shame, we wanna kind of embrace it and befriend it and try to understand it and learn what we can from it instead of keep pushing it away. My time wise. Okay, we're gonna skip part of it, I think. Um, all right. So it is important to look at what's going on, take any validity that we can, but also remember that it's untrue. So recognizing the untruth of what we feel in shame. Reclaiming our humanity. I love a little story about Oliver Cromwell. He was an English statesman and the Lord Protector of England. And this is a time when they did portraits. And um, they always did their portraits perfectly, even if the faces had flaws. So he had his portrait done, and it came back looking perfect, and all of his warts and everything were gone. And he said to the person um, who created that portrait, where are my warts? I want you to go back, and I want you to put those warts back in here. And I really feel like reclaiming humanity is so much of that, really getting to where we understand that we're not just good and we're not just bad, but really accepting all of us for who we are. Um, and when we're in shame, we are very much so focused on good or bad. If I make a mistake, I'm a whole mistake. Instead of 
um, seeing that we're really this amazing combination of both things. And for a good reason. Our greatest strengths are learned from the weakest part of us. We learn to love and to be loved in our brokenness, not in the absence of our brokenness. So much of this idea that we have to be perfect for other people to love us is nonsense. Um, I remember listening to an English teacher some years ago talking about how to develop characters. And she said, you never ever want to develop your characters as perfect and that they don't have any flaws because absolutely no one relates to that. Um, we all have those imperfections in our flaws. It's through our weakness and our vulnerability that we connect with each other, not through our perfection. Okay. The try hard give up, Van, give up cycle by Van Vonderen is something that I've really liked. So he calls this, okay, the try hard give up. On the one side, you've got the give up. This is the side where you have given up, where you have this sense of you're never good enough. No matter what you do, it's not right. You're defective, incompetent, and unworthy. So on this side of the incompetence, we're kind of stuck here. But then something kind of triggers in us and we think, okay, I'm gonna overcome this, I'm gonna beat this, I'm gonna go over to this other side. And we move into the perfection side where you're gonna show everyone that you're strong and you're powerful and you've got it all together and everyone's giving you accolades in this try hard part of it. But then when you make a mistake, it throws you right back into the give up again. And so many of us get stuck in this cycle of going around and around and around from giving up and then moving back into try hard. But what Van Vaudneren says is there's an entirely different path that we can take when we're feeling these shameful things. Um, and we can move into this place that he calls rest, a place of grace. And for me, that's what it is. This is my grace place. This is where I feel um, whole and complete and loved as who I am for a person. So we'll do the quote now. Shame is a master of disguise. What convinced me of this is something I have noticed in counseling. I've seen corporate executives whose marriages are in much tr as much trouble as those of alcoholics. They just look better. I have seen submissive wives who are just as tired and disillusioned as prostitutes. They just look better. Brene Brown in her research found that there are shame triggers that are kind of specific to women. And I don't think this is gonna surprise any of the women in this room, but number one for women is how they look. Anyone surprised by this? No? So number one is how they look and their body image. And when I think about pornography addiction, it's like nailing that button so hard and so fast that it's, uh, I, I picture the space shuttle going off with this um, because I think it really triggers this one. Number two, very close for women, next to how they look is motherhood. And this can be whether you haven't had children, whether you feel like you have too many children, whether your children are making not the right choices. When I think of this one, I think of when my kids were young and little and how much pressure there was to have your child be the first one who walked or the first one who knew their ABCs and all of that goes into motherhood. Um, something Brene Brown said is women are expected to be perfect but not look like they are working for it. 
I have a personal example of this just recently where we had a family event a week and a half ago where we had family come in from out of town and it was my in-laws, so I was a little bit more nervous about everything. So I spent weeks preparing my house to get ready for them to come and making sure it was cleaned and scrubbed and perfect. And I was totally and completely stressed out because I had this going on in grad school, but yet I thought I needed to have my house be perfect for these people to come. And I was talking to my mom on the phone. She's like, yeah, I do that too. Why do we do this crazy thing where we're going crazy? And it's because we want to look like we've got that house that looks like this all the time. And that's just not true. Um, and the other thing is conformity to feminine norms. Women are expected to stay small, sweet, and quiet as quiet as possible and use our time and talents to look pretty. Our dreams, ambitions, and gifts are unimportant when the shame signals we pick up from the world around us. For men, the number one shame trigger is looking weak. Did I do that? <laughs> All right. See if I try to use those again. Okay. Yes. So, and we really expect them to be all powerful and all knowing. And one of the things that Brene Brown talks about that she said in her research was very surprising was that we ask men to be vulnerable and open, but then when they are, it's really hard for us, so then we kind of shame them back into going, into closing off again. I'm not touching that again. <laughs> Let's move into families that are in shame. They have characteristics that are similar, and this is from Possum and Mason. So with family shame, they can be perfectionistic. And there is a difference between striving for excellence and really wanting to do your best to achieve your best and perfection. Perfection is trying to look good for everyone else so that you feel like you are accepted and that you're better than others at all times. Also, controlling families are very shameful. The model for this family is control at all times. There's very little spontaneity or play. They're very rigid, and there's usually someone domineering and someone submissive within the family unit. In family shame, there's blame. If things don't happen the way that you plan, then you blame someone for it. They deny vulnerable feelings like anxiety, fear, loneliness, grief, rejection, and neediness. And they're unreliable. You cannot rely on them for that human connection. There's generally comparisons in name calling, and addiction is very much so tied to family shame. Unwritten family rules. What other people think is what matters most. Feelings don't matter. Certain feelings are bad. Kids have to act way older than they are. Peace at all costs. And it's not okay to, okay to have needs. Needs are selfish. Mason and Fossum also identified four family masks. The first family mask is the fairy tale family. This is the family who appears to have it all together and they're generally the envy of everyone else. This is the land of Facebook and Christmas cards. 
On the outside, these families have the right house, the right car, they go on the right vacations, they dress the right way, and they attend all the right schools. But everything on the inside is a false facade. The motto is, live by our rules and all will be well. The interesting thing about these families is when they do have a mishap or you find out that, okay, that they're really not as perfect as you think they are, it really is disruptive to the rest of us because we've held them up to that ideal and when we see them fall, it's really disturbing to us. There's the disconnected family. These are the families who move away from each other as they get older. They scatter out all over the country and then they don't connect with each other. Um, the motto for this family is just keep your distance. There's the rough and tough family, heavily prescribed gender roles, and the model for this family is, it's not all right to be sad, lonely, or needy. Can you see the theme going throughout this? In these families, it's just not okay to feel these vulnerable emotions. And the nice, nice family. The motto is, if you love me, you will never be in conflict with me. Vulnerable feelings, once again, are not allowed. They are all bottled up. All right. So, I could describe my family as all of those things um, in my own raising our family. At times, we've been trying to be the nice, nice family, but really working hard to look like we're the fairy, fairy tale family, but also at times being rough and tough and having disconnection all at the same time. Um, as much as I don't like sexual addiction, and I did not like going through that experience, I can say the one really awesome thing about all of this is that it helped us get out of this trap into a different way. Um, with my own personal growing, I started adopting this motto of work in progress. And that's what I really wanted to start to think about instead of forcing myself to be perfect all the time. So I adopted that for me, and then I had this lovely idea of adopting it as our family motto. So our family motto right now is work in progress. And we started moving away from all of the perfectionism and the controlling. And we started talking about grace. And we started talking about it being okay to make mistakes. And we started talking about guilt and shame. And we started to adopt this as our way of living. It's been a couple of years since we started doing this. And the growth in our family has been awesome. Um, our financial status has improved. Children who were struggling stopped struggling, and other kids started to do well that were struggling as well. And the atmosphere of our entire home started to change, just from adopting a few little things. We're not perfect. Sometimes we do the shame trap thing, but I have noticed a drastic difference in our home by making this shift. Um, and when we ask our children, about where we're at now compared to where we were before, they will always point back to mom. It's when we started talking about being a work in progress that we started to change as a family. So I believe in everything that I'm telling you right now. Teach your kids about shame and teach them about guilt. They can pick up on it. Um, just the other day, I heard one of my teenagers saying to one of my other teenagers that they had taught one of their friends that day about shame and guilt. And sometimes you don't think you're getting through, but your kids do get it when you teach it to them. 
My little nine-year-old also told me about flipping his lid the other day. He's like, Mom, when I flip my lid, I go out to the treehouse and it helps me calm down. Um, but one of the most important things you can do is practice self-compassion yourself. What they see is what they learn from you. So if you're practicing self-compassion for you, they're going to see that in you and how you behave. Also, it's important for you to not shame other people outside of your family, inside your home. Your kids see that as well. Um, very, very huge to make sure that your children know they belong in your home. Um, sometimes their behavior is going to be bad, and sometimes you're going to have to discipline. But give them that sense of no matter what, they belong there in your family and that you accept them and love them, that their worthiness is not based on um, their behavior, but on who they are and is deep in their core. Help them to understand that mistakes are just a normal, normal part of life. Um, one of my favorite quotes on mistakes is from Ed Catmull. And if you don't know who he is, he's the president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation. I'm hoping I said his last name right, but in his book, Creativity, Inc., they have done an amazing job at setting up an organization that is very shame resilient. Um, so this came from that book. He said, we need to think about failure differently. I'm not the first to say that failure, when approached properly, can be an opportunity for growth. But the way most people interpret this assertion is that mistakes are a necessary evil. Mistakes are not a necessary evil. They aren't evil at all. They are an inevitable consequence of doing something new and as such should be seen as valuable. Without them, we have no originality. And yet, even as that I say, embracing failure is an important part of learning, I also acknowledge that acknowledging this truth is not enough. That's because failure is painful. And our feelings about this pain tend to screw up our understanding of its worth. To disentangle the good and the bad parts of failure, we have to recognize both the reality of the pain and the benefits of the results of growth. Left to their, most, to their own device, people don't want to fail. But Andrew Stanton isn't most people. As I've mentioned, he's known around Pixar for repeating the phrase, fail early and fail fast, and be wrong as fast as you can. He thinks of failure like learning to ride a bike. It isn't conceivable that you would learn to do this without making mistakes, without toppling over a few times. Get a bike that is as low to the ground as you can, put on elbow and knee pads so that you're not afraid of falling, and go. He says if you apply that mindset to everything new you attempt, you begin to subvert the negative connotations associated with making mistakes. Says Andrew, you wouldn't say to someone who was first learning to play the guitar, You'd better think really hard about where you put your fingers on that guitar neck before you strum, because you only get to strum once, and that's it. If you, got that, if you get that wrong, we're going to move on. And that's really not a way to learn now, is it? So just in closing, um, oh, we're, did, have we? Okay, we still have more to go. We'll, we'll go more. Do you accept that there are going to be differences in your home and that every family has bad moments and every couple has bad moments? I love one of the things that John Gottman says. He says every couple has regrettable incidents. 
It's not a matter of us not having regrettable incidents in our family. It's about acknowledging those and then rebuilding our connection with each other after we have those bad moments. Share your good moments, but also share your struggles with your children. You can let them know when you're feeling shame and what it's like. When you make mistakes, apologize. And be an emotion coach. Really help them learn and understand how to deal with those vulnerable feelings that they have. They, if you look at our vulnerable feelings, they really teach us how to deal with the best and the worst of our humanity, but it's also the way we connect with the best and the worst of the humanity in each other. It's also a great time to connect with your children when they're feeling those vulnerable feelings. Help them label their feelings, know what those feelings are, and help them understand how to use those feelings. And when they're feeling those feelings, teach them appropriate outlets and things that they can do so that later on they're not moving towards things like pornography. An example of an emotion coach is if a child's running into the house with a skinned knee, an emotion coach would say, it really hurts when we fall down and skin our knee, doesn't it? What an emotion coach would not say is, stop that crying. The skin knee really shouldn't hurt that much. Just the little things in how we treat our children and the little things that we say can add so much to who they are um, and their worth as a human being. Um, it's been a pleasure for me to be here with you and to share this journey with you. Um, I'm passionate about shame. I believe that families can learn to be not shame-free because we all feel shame from time to time, but we can learn to become more shame-resilient in the journey. Thanks for being here. You have been listening to an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. For more information or other recordings, please visit our website at www.healthyintimacy.net. Thank you for listening.